0: Welcome back. Uh, last week, we sort of launched into not only a new season in Resonate, but uh, we've just sort of hard launched into our, our story series, which is something I'm really, really thrilled about. Uh, because stories, like they matter a lot. And as I've researched the idea of story, and, and really I've been diving deeper into what a story means and what it is and what it does. Uh, it's just become apparent to me that it's something that just needs to be talked about like all the time, especially in churches. Because the way that we tell stories is super, super, super important. Um, and so this morning, we're going to go through one of the darkest, weirdest stories in the Bible, and it's the story of Cain and Abel. And uh, it's a, like we teach this in Sunday school, so it's, it's kind of strange. So we're going to go into why that's kind of strange. Um, we're also going to go into its two main themes. And Cain and Abel is really about two things. It's about, uh, it's about injustice. And it's about jealousy. And what we're going to tackle today is mostly that idea of jealousy and comparison and how we compare each other in our lives. Um, before we do that, I want to pray for us, and we'll, we'll jump in. So God, I am so grateful uh, that you have just provided us with this space where we can come in and, and dive into your story. God, as we look into this, this very, very early story in the first book of the Bible, or we see the first death uh, in Scripture, and we see the first murder, and how that first death is tied into murder, and how grim that is. And, and uh, Lord, what I'm excited about is to see what you do with that situation and how you react uh, to such a tragic loss of life, um, what it is that you do in the face of that. Uh, so Lord, just reveal that to us this morning and bless this place. Amen. So I'll start out on a weird note. Uh, my wife comes from an extremely good-looking family. And it's true, uh, especially like, when you're new in it, it's extremely intimidating, at least for me it was. Um, her, her grandfather, it all trickles down from him. He looks like a more chiseled Michael Landon. And if Michael Landon is a strange reference, it's because he looks exactly like Michael Landon. That's Little House on the Prairie, Bonanza. Check it out. But Michael Landon, and he did the Iron Man in his 50s. So he completed an Iron Man in his 50s. so he's like this chiselled, like good looking like movie star guy, and the rest of the family is just a sea of beautiful people. And so when you come into it as an outsider, you come in going like, "Oh my gosh, I gotta step my game up." So whenever there's like Thanksgiving or there's a cousin's dinner or something like that, I go and I go get like a new shirt or I go and shop for a new thing. And my wife, like, like, you'd think that she'd look at me like a crazy person and go like, it's not this big of a deal, like, don't worry about it. No, it's like totally encouraged on her behalf. She's like, you need to go get that shirt so that we're not messing around. Um, and, and like, so the, the point is, I'm always trying to keep up and I really can't. There's a picture of this cousin group on our fridge and my dad came over and literally just went like, wow. His, his one note on one of them is that that guy looks like Superman. There, when they entered our wedding, this is the best, they all came in like dressed in black and all sort of the same and they entered the room and you could feel a physical shift in the energy like the bride and groom were here but look at all of those beautiful people enter. It's, it was nuts. And so I, it, it, like, it's tough not to compare yourself in those family situations and in those dynamics. And it all culminated when Chelsea and I got a new car. So we just leased a new car. My uh, classic 2003 CRV finally bit the dust, rest in peace. Um, so we went, we, we shopped sort of meticulously, and we found the car we wanted, we got at least a RAV4, and we were all pumped. And Chelsea has this tradition in her family where if you get a new car, you drive it to grandma and grandpa's, and they basically hem and haul over it like you bought this like gorgeous chariot. And, and they make you feel like a million bucks, they're just like, oh my goodness, this is so beautiful. So Chelsea was super excited to go do that, because it's the tradition since she was 16. And uh, we were at a family gathering, and we were just gonna combo this. So we invite the grandparents outside to come see our brand new car so they can hem and haw. And this is not a joke. Literally as we're walking outside for them to go see our Toyota RAV4, the best looking cousins in the crew come in the car that they bought that day and roll up right next to it, and our car is completely ignored. They go, "Oh my gosh!" Because they bought like a BMW; it was really nice. So they go over there, and they're like, "My!" Mm, and and Chelsea and I just look at each other, like, "Yeah, this is this is this is how this works." Um, and while like while that's that's a you know a funny struggle, uh, there's something way way deeper going on uh, when we compare ourselves like that. And, and really, what that comes down to is this idea of jealousy. And what I want to cover in our story together this morning is that the world's first murder and the first violent act that we see in scripture comes out of something that's actually much more dangerous, and that is jealousy. So if you have a Bible uh, on you, you can turn to Genesis 4, that's what we'll be covering. If you don't have a Bible, you have a cell phone, you can pull that out and download the Bible app. That's like the best Bible there is, and you can get that for free. Um, if not, it's going to be on the screen back behind me. So. Don't stress. Uh, This is Genesis 4. It's a big chunk here. We're going to go all the way through verse 15, so uh, stick with me. Uh, It says, verse 1, The man, Adam, knew his wife, Eve, intimately. She became pregnant and gave birth to Cain, and said, I have given uh, life to a man with the Lord's help. She gave birth to a second time to Cain's brother, Abel. Abel cared for the flocks, and Cain farmed the fertile land. Sometime later, Cain presented an offering to the Lord from the land's crops. While Abel presented his crops, his flock's oldest uh, offspring, with their fat, the Lord looked favorably on Abel and his sacrifice, but didn't look favorably on Cain and his sacrifice. Cain became very angry and looked resentful. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why do you look so resentful? If you do the right thing, won't you be accepted? But if you don't do the right thing, sin will be waiting at the door ready to strike. It will entice you. You must rule over it. So Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out into the field. When they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. The Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? And Cain said, I don't know. Am I my brother's guardian? The Lord said, what did you do? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. You are now cursed from the ground that opened its mouth to take your brother's blood from your hand. When, the farm, when you farm the fertile land, it will no longer grow anything for you, and you will become a roving nomad on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Now that you've driven me away from the fertile land and I am hidden from your presence, I'm about to become a roving nomad on the earth, and anyone who finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, it won't happen. Anyone who kills Cain will be paid seven. Or will be paid back seven times. The Lord put a sign on Cain, so that no one who found him would assault him. So it's a heavy story, and we're just in Genesis four here. Like right out the gate, there's this really, really intense story. And I think it's hilarious that if you grew up in church, this was one of the major stories that you were taught. So I went back to my children's Bible for a little nostalgia, and I found this picture. Boom! There's Cain and Abel, right? <laughs> It gets weirder. Here's another one. That one's super weird. And then finally, (laughs) there's this one, which is creepy, but actually the most accurate out of them all. So uh, if we're looking at this story, usually you pull out like, okay, so murder is bad, and then God punishes people. Those are usually the two sort of key points that when we teach from Cain and Abel, we look at. But again, we're trying to tell a better version of the story. So what's really going on here? What's moving these characters? Who are the characters? Why on earth did it escalate from like an, an offering situation to a murderous situation? What's going on and what's at play? And what's really going on in the whole theme of this story is this powerful, powerful theme of jealousy. And it starts off with like a simple comparison. When, when Cain and Abel go and they, they offer up their, their two things, Cain compares himself to Abel because he's passed up. And Mark Twain absolutely nails it when he says, Compa- comparison is the death of joy. When we compare ourselves in status, possessions, and in finances, we're actually ignoring the blessings of our own life and that is why jealousy is so toxic. It turns us away from the good in our own lives. So let's start at the beginning of the story. The story opens and Cain is born. There's a first son, right? And, and that's extremely significant. Let's, we're going to rewind and look at sort of the Jewish tradition and why that would be super significant. At this time in ancient history, if you were the firstborn son, there was a little privilege built right in there. So if you're the firstborn, you, you were sort of handed the keys to the kingdom in a sense. You were going to receive the largest inheritance and you were going to lead the family. Growing up in a pastor's, home, my best high school joke was roaming our little modest three-bedroom house and being like, one day, this will all be mine. Um, and that's because in, in the biblical tradition, the oldest son is, is pretty much looked at as the, the, the next in line, right? So there's, there's privilege involved in this. Uh, I wanna take a look at the names, too. So first of all, we have Cain, who's born, and he's the firstborn, then we have Abel, And if you notice in the scripture, Cain is named by Eve. So Eve names Cain, but she does not name Abel. So right from there, you can see there's sort of a little less care in the second child. And the first child, we learned two weeks ago when we were going through Adam and Eve, that Adam is not really a name for this human being. So it's not like those aren't their character names. Adam is a Hebrew word for humanity. And Eve is a Hebrew word for mother of all living. And so if we look at this story symbolically, which we should, it's a poem, so we're supposed to sort of pull out the beautiful poetry in it. Humanity and the mother of all living have children, and so their names are Cain and Abel. What do their names mean? Cain is a Hebrew word for acquire. So not only do we have a firstborn son, sort of a privileged thing, but we also know that his name means to acquire, which, which sort of implies some ambition. Cain is an ambitious character, and he wants to acquire things. He works the land, and Abel works the flock. So Cain is set in a certain geographical location, but his brother Abel roams around and lives off the land. So this is where things get really fascinating. Right from the beginning, Abel's name is a Hebrew word that means vapor. It's a Hebrew word called Havel, and Havel is this awesome word. It's used a lot in Scripture, and it describes something that's here for a second and then gone. So right from the beginning of this story, the author is giving us a clue. It's a little foreshadowing saying, like, this guy is not going to be around all that much longer. And so Cain presents his veggies, uh, perhaps a vegan meal to God, and Abel presents some choice cuts, and that's not an example of God's diet. I just think it's kind of funny that it's in there. And Cain's offering is passed by and Abel's is recognized. And remember, we're placing ourselves in the story here. So Cain is the firstborn, and he's the one with the status, and God blesses Abel, the one without status. There's a huge amount of jealousy that turns to anger here. Cain feels like he's been duped, and even more interesting, there's no mention of God like berating Cain for his offering. He just simply blesses Abel. So it's not like, it's not like God just passes him by and says like, what have you brought me, this is, this is terrible. He just literally just, like, kind of moves on, and he looks at Abel, because Abel brought, like, his choice thing. Abel was bringing the sacrifice, and Cain was bringing just sort of what he had along. So there wasn't, like, there wasn't, like, a stern punishment for that. That was just, like, God going to Abel and going, good job. And in that, it sparks this sort of theme and seed of jealousy. And I wanted this week to research... Jealousy so that we could really get to the core of this story and what makes jealousy tick and what what triggers jealousy in us And what I found out is that it's actually pretty hard to figure out what triggers us because it's so common There are thousands and thousands of different triggers This is one of the few emotions that they've documented in other animals So elephants show signs of jealousy which I think I would love to see a jealous elephant and then chimps show signs of jealousy So it's it's this primal animalistic, like, emotion. And it's something that gets going, like, super, super fast in our brains. So I, I wonder, like, he's saying, look, I know you're feeling this awful sense of long... Oh, I'm sorry, I, I skipped down. What, what Cain was doing was being kind of pouty. So he gets, he gets jealous, he gets pouty, and God literally calls Cain out before he kills his brother and said that sin is crouching at his door, but he can master it. He's saying, look, I know you're feeling this awful sense of longing, but I want you to know, more than an elephant or a chimp, you have the power to choose. And I wonder how often we choose jealousy because it feels better in that moment just for a slight, like, venting release than it does to understand that God has built in this control factor for us, that we can actually fight those animalistic things off. So what we can pull out of the story is that by choosing jealousy, we're choosing the death the other joys in our life. We're making a conscious decision to look away from the beauty our lives should have in them and shake our fists at God because we think we should have what so-and-so has. And no place is this more simple than inside of our own heads when we're not in community. And even more than that, even more dangerous is when we're inside our own heads and we're in front of our screens. So our screens, our phones, our computers, they're all supposed to like connect us more. And ironically, that's not what they do at all. They kind of separate us. I did some research about like, Facebook and your time spent on social media this week and it turns out that you are 20% more likely to buy something after like a, like a 10 minute jaunt on Facebook. You're also 30% more likely to be depressed after looking at any social media feed for more than 10 minutes. And yet we do this to ourselves constantly. And it, it causes us to compare. I have friends on Facebook that are literally there because I want to keep tabs on where they are in life compared to me. And that looks a lot like that. (laughs) Creepy, right? (laughs) Uh, Why do we do this to ourselves? I've never been on Facebook or on a social media feed that afterwards I've gone to myself like, ah, like time well spent, that felt good. You always leave feeling drained and it's because you're leaving with a highlight reel of everybody else's life and you're comparing yourself constantly so if, if jealousy really is this, this purely primal, animalistic behavior, then it's something that comes up in us really, really quickly. And it's something that we, we have a hard time controlling. And when we are like constantly pouring in images and status updates and all this kind of stuff, we're, we're putting ourselves in a very, very precarious position to lose that battle. Because jealousy can creep in at any moment. So I, I learned too that jealousy this week, it's, it's something that uh, happens when we're four years old, we develop something called healthy comparison. In other words, we're able to recognize our want and do something about it, and we need that kind of drive. That's seeing like your friend learn to read and going, oh, I want that, I want to learn to read. We need that, but the problem is we need to grow out of that four-year-old sense because the trigger still happens as if we're four years old whenever jealousy creeps in. I didn't mean to go on a social media tirade, by the way. I think there's a lot of good that can be done in that environment. But um, I'm just speaking of the way that we abuse it. We abuse that power. And that's the same way Cain abuses the ability to manipulate his brother Abel. So let's jump back into the story. Cain commits the first documented case of murder in the Bible. In fact, it's the first time that we see death in general. In our stories that we'll be covering, we're going to touch on all of these, and this, this, this makes this ongoing pattern of brother-on-brother violence. We see it all the time. It's this, like, common theme in Scripture, and it starts here. And the symbolism in that is that the people that we're supposed to actually be caring for the most, when Cain says, like, what am I my brother's keeper? The ironic answer to that question is, yes, you are. This is someone you're supposed to love. And in scripture, we see that symbolic relationship of brother on brother and constantly fighting with each other. And it's, it's symbolism of like the people that we're supposed to love the most are sometimes the most difficult people in our lives. So, how does God redeem this murder? If we believe in a God of wrath, which is what our God sometimes get a, gets a bad rap for, then we believe that it's an eye for an eye type of situation, but it's not. When, when God finds Cain, he says, Where's your brother? He doesn't go like, he doesn't respond with this righteous anger. He doesn't respond with death. So we see this a lot in scripture later on. But in the first documented case of murder, there isn't an eye for an eye. There isn't a tooth for a tooth. God extends this crazy amount of like mercy and grace. So when he's faced with the first murder, he just kind of goes like, oh, oh no. I think the most fascinating part about this story is that not only does he not kill Cain for what he's done, but he sends him out, and he marks him, and he protects him from others. So that mark is so interesting to me. He's not marking Cain to protect him from God. He's marking Cain to protect him from other people, because it's not God that responds with murder back. It's people that do that. And he also says that they'll get paid back seven times, which if you know, my nerdy seven rant. I was super excited to see seven in there this week. Um, But God responds with mercy and grace. And here's the stories that we're going to be looking at. We've seen Adam and Eve, and they took matters into their own hands. Now we see Cain and Abel. They take matters into their own hands. Next week, we're going to look at Noah, and we're going to see humanity take matters into their own hands. And all this comes down to the simple principle that, like, really deep, deep down, the big overarching narrative of the Scripture is that humans want to be more God-like. Right from the beginning, when Adam and Eve take the fruit, it isn't because they're hungry or they want that. It's because they wanted to know the knowledge of good and evil. They wanted to be like God. When the serpent tempts them, he says, if you do this, you'll be like him. You'll be like God. And so this creates this pattern all the way through scripture where the humans try to become more godlike and they always miss the mark. When they try to become more godlike, they try and do things like murder or try and have power over people. We're going to read stories of all of these little tribes that come together later on and each one is warring with each other all for the simple fact that they want power. So they're trying to be godlike in the way that they want power. And I think what's really, really cool about the whole story of the Bible is that it culminates with this Jesus character, this man Jesus. So God's answer to the biggest narrative in Scripture, which is humans trying to be more God-like, God actually sends himself as a man. A perfect picture of what we're trying to get at all along. We see God and man come together for the first time in Jesus, and it does not look anything like what we're trying to get at in these stories. Jesus is not trying to assert power over people. He's extremely peaceful. He's not violent. He's extremely peaceful. He's, he's, not, he's not this king that comes with a sword. He's the king that comes in like humility and humbleness. When we see the actual humanity and the divine come together, the combination is something so deeply, profoundly loving and beautiful and forgiving that it flips the script on the whole story. So I want to I uh, pray for us this morning um, about our, around our ideas of jealousy. And then I also just want us to be able to come to the table this morning. So uh, we do this every week, and we call it table time. So I'm gonna, like, we're going to come up. I'm going to uh, unleash the hollow, which is hiding underneath there. There are uh, gluten-free crackers right next door. You can dip that into the wine, um, and we'll experience communion together. And then the other thing that I want to do is uh, introduce you to the community table. So you all have that little um, uh, your community card. Go ahead and fill that out. We want to know your prayer requests. We want to be praying for you as a community. And you can drop that in here. And you can also use this as a space to be generous. So if you want to uh, give and give generously, you can do that right here. Um, and we're excited about that. So let me pray over this table time together. And the band's going to come up, and they'll play, uh, and we'll, we'll feast. And then we'll leave this place slowly. There's still donuts out there. So if you didn't get your carbs here, you can do that there. Um, let me pray for us. God. I'm so grateful uh, just to be in this space. I'm so grateful that we get to experience communion together. Um, Maybe one of the greatest parts of your story is uh, on the last night that you were with your disciples, you took the bread and you broke it and you said, this is my body broken for you. And you took the wine, the cup, and you said, this is my blood poured out for you, a sign of a new covenant. Drink of it often and remember me. So God, as we talk about stories, even dark, crazy stories that involve murder and jealousy. I also just pray that we could remember the true story, and that's at the table with your disciples, breaking that bread and saying, I am with you always. And when you do this, you're stepping into the narrative of God. You're stepping into the table. And so I just pray over this space and this time that we would do that joyfully and seriously as we come experience communion together. Uh, The table is a place where all are welcome. And God, I just, I pray over our community table and our time there that you would allow us to give generously and you would also allow us to just pray for each other uh, and be in communication and grow this community uh, in, in relationship, Lord. Amen.